Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Hello, everyone. I'm Dorothy Koshu, host of the Benefits Executive Roundtable. I'd like to welcome my guest today, Mike Siegel, VP of Sales Development, and Omar Arif, Senior Vice President of Growth from ClaimDoc, a reference-based pricing vendor. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Dorothy. It's great to be here. Thank you again for the invitation to be on your uh, podcast. Uh, Really excited to be here today. Thank you, Mike. It's nice to have you. Dorothy, yeah, thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. Uh, and I just want to say that your your technology skills are making me feel incredibly inadequate at the moment. So thank you for getting this all set up. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. But my technology skills aren't that great. I have to credit my uh, tech team for that. They've taught me a lot. So thank you very much. <laughs> so Ted and Ted, thank you so much. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and get started because we have a lot of stuff to cover today. And I know that you guys know that I do a lot of self-funding and I have several clients using reference-based pricing in their health plan. But I also have one client who used RBP for a few years and they got out simply because it was too difficult communicating with their plan participants and with all the additional time that was needed, the unknowns, the risks and so forth uh, related to using RBP. You know, it was not easy for them to do. Using RBP takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of uh, expertise. It takes a lot of communication to make it all work. You know, it's just not right for everyone. Some groups, some populations, it's just not a good fit for them. You know, for my client that stopped using RBP, it was just too cumbersome because they had 1,650 employees, many of whom spoke little or no English. They spoke mostly Spanish. And they just didn't understand what RBP is and no amount of education on our part seemed to help with that situation. So having said that, for many groups, it works extremely well. And we have some groups that have been very, very, very successful with RBP. But again, it does take more time and patience from the employer's HR department, the finance department, uh, everybody, the vendors, of course. And it also takes a really good liaison, like in our office, our clients that use reference-based pricing. They work with my business partner, Anthony McCarran, who basically, you know, handholds those clients through the RBP process. So in your opinion, what are the best types of groups to propose reference-based pricing to, and how do you, you know, help to make sure that the employers are successful at it? Dorothy, I'll, I'll take that one. We, we get asked about that a lot, like what's in your wheelhouse or, or what type of groups do you write? And traditionally for RBP, it's been the blue and gray collar employers, you know, businesses that operate off of tight margins and they got to find the best deal uh, on all of their expenses. So they're looking at healthcare in the same way. Um, that's kind of changed over the last, call it, 12 months as healthcare inflation has skyrocketed along with every other consumer good you can think of. And so now we're looking at more and more white-collar groups uh, of, of all types. And, and it really just comes down to the entity that we're working with and how much pain they're experiencing. Did they just get a huge renewal that they can't tolerate? Was that renewal unjustified and everybody's mad? Or are they just tired of playing the traditional managed care game that we've all been playing for the last 20 to 30 years? So, you know, that, that, that's a great question. And, it, and it's actually top of mind for us because we're in the middle of putting together um, an employer guide for what things to think about when you are doing uh, an alternative model. Uh, and we call it network replacement when you're doing a full network replacement. Um, and so you're right. It's not for everybody. But I think going into it, a client needs to know all the facts 
that's first. They need to know what they're buying and know what they're getting themselves into. Um, the second piece is that you absolutely have to have a broker that is an expert in this type of arrangement. It, it can't be, you know, the the status quo consultant that you know the CFO plays golf with or the brother-in-law type of deal. You, you got to be dealing with an expert if you're going to do this, uh, and then you got to pick the right vendor partners. Um, we think we're one of those, and we we have all the references, referrals. Um, the market is telling us that we are a leader in our space. And and then I think the last piece is you mentioned that you have to over communicate with the group. It's not just a set it and forget it plan. You've got to you've got to stay on top of it day in and day out, month in and month out to make sure that it goes well, especially in the first year, because that's um, that's the big year when you're making that switch. How do you make it as smooth as possible? Well, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, our particular client that actually had done this and, and got out actually had done it for two or three years and then got out, which kind of surprised me, but I understood their their decision and so forth. But you're right. The education is crazy. Uh, I know that I talked about reference-based pricing with our clients for about two and a half years before I recommended that any of them you know, move into it. So they were all excited. They're like, when can we do this? When can we do this? And I kept saying, it's not... It's not good enough here on the West Coast yet. Once I feel comfortable with it, because as you guys know, it started elsewhere. It didn't start here in California and on the West Coast. It started, you know, in the East and, and worked its way slowly this way. And, and we had, you know, uh, the bukas and so forth kind of keeping it out of our marketplace. And, and uh, it was very difficult. So I started with a tremendous amount of education, webinar after webinar, seminar after seminar, uh, really walking our clients through it. And you're right, uh, brokers that just dabble in it or think they can just dabble in it, they're going to get buried with RBP. Uh, and I think that's a great point that you made. Thank you for bringing that up because it really does take um, a high level of expertise to understand this and to make it work. So thank you for your comments on that. Well, let's step back a bit and explain to our listeners, for those who may not have a tremendous background in RBP, let's talk about what is it? How does it work? Why don't you guys uh, give us your two cents on this? Sure. Reference-based pricing um, or RBP for short is, to me, it's it's simply a financing mechanism. Um, it is a way to replace the traditional managed care network, whether you're with a PPO or an HMO or a POS or an EPO or an ACO or whatever other acronym that the carriers have come up with to make you think you're getting something new and cool. Um, it's basically throwing out all of that out the window and paying claims in a self-funded plan on a more fair metric. That's all it is. And what do you mean by a more fair metric? Well, there's, there's numerous ways to do it, but we establish Medicare as sort of the baseline, uh, as most RBP vendors do. And, and then you just apply a markup from there so that you ensure you're paying at a fair and reasonable rate versus the traditional managed care model where you're paying the discount off of a charge master because that discount off of a charge master now equates to about three times Medicare. So when, when we go to CFOs and say, how does it feel to get a deal that's three times worse than the federal government gets for the same service, they don't really like that too much. And so when you establish Medicare as the baseline and pay a markup from there or you know, hospitals self-reported costs that they have to submit to the federal government and mark it up from there, um, you ensure transparency and you ensure that you're getting a fair price for the dollars you're spending. 
Yes, absolutely. And just so you know, I mean, you mentioned the 300%. In some cases, 300% would be a good rate uh, if you're comparing it to some of the PPO networks out there, because our experience has been when comparing to Medicare rates, some of these supposedly excellent PPOs, you know, their rates in some of these top hospitals when comparing to Medicare are 300 to 600 or 900% of Medicare for certain services. Is, is that, have you seen any of that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, 300 is just kind of a blanket average that we use, but out West where you guys are, um, it's a lot worse. It's a lot worse. So we, we typically tell an employer that we're going to save them 25 to 35% off of a traditional PPO HMO model. And it's, it's actually higher than that out in California on the business that we have. So yeah, California's the extreme. Yeah, we, we like to be extreme about a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, that also rolls over to healthcare, which is not a good thing. But uh, well, let's talk about that a little bit more. Uh, can the employer group select their payable amount? Can they select 140% of Medicare, 150%, 175%, 200% of Medicare? And if so, can they vary that between what they pay facilities and what they pay their uh, doctor's offices? Yes and no. So our, our standard methodology is we look at two metrics. We look at Medicare and we look at the hospital's cost to charge ratio. So their self-reported cost. We typically take Medicare and mark it up by 25%. And then we take cost and mark it up by 20%. And whichever of those two metrics is greater, that's how we reimburse facility charges. There is some variability in that when um, when we're doing a direct contract with maybe a, a highly utilized facility um, or we're doing some negotiation for a certain facility in order to get to a direct contract. So there is a little bit of wiggle room in there, but typically we, we want to roll with our standard pricing methodology, one, because we know it works, and two, because we, we don't want to cannibalize other membership we may have in the area if, we, if we're cutting side deals with certain facilities and employer groups. So what if a group is already uh, using reference-based pricing and they have, let's say, uh, in place right now, um, 150% of Medicare that they're paying for the professional services and doctors and 175% that they're paying for facilities? What would you do and how would you approach a group like that to move into something like how you are pricing it that they'll say, they may say something like, well, we could pick our amount before. How come we can't pick our amounts now? Well, that's a fairly detailed question that we could certainly dig into. Like, you know, I would need to know, does the contract sit with the employer or was it, is it with their existing RVP vendor or is it with you know, a, a direct contracting company that facilitated that contract on their behalf? We would just need to know how and why that, that contract came about and maybe we could work around it. Maybe not. But that's, that's something that we can certainly um, figure out on a case-by-case basis with our groups. And, and that's part of the advantage of who we are as ClaimDoc is we're – we're a privately held shop. We have a lot of latitude in the way we can um, go about our business. And we try to be as flexible as possible for our broker partners that really get it and are, and are leading with these types of strategies. So um, the answer to that is we can do it. Um, it may not make sense in every scenario, but we certainly can. Thank you, Omar. I appreciate that. And you know I'm going to ask questions like this because that's who I am. Because I do a lot of this, as you know. So I'm going to ask all kinds of questions. Sorry. Uh, fair. That's fair. <laughs> so uh, ClaimDoc is one of many vendors uh, that's offering RBP, of course. Uh, some of your competitors include ELAP, HST, AMPS, Six Degrees, Payer Compass, just to name a few. Let's talk about what makes you different from them in general, in your opinion, as you mentioned, you're a family-owned business. So does that have something to do with why you're different? 
Uh, let me jump in on this one, uh, uh, Dorothy. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and it's, it's usually obviously the number one question I get uh, from clients and brokers. What makes ClaimDoc different? Why ClaimDoc? Well, as you said, we are a family-owned business based out of Des Moines, Iowa, the heartland. Um, with that said, there's, we have no outside investors, no debt. Uh, probably the only player in the space that isn't uh, private equity or VC-backed or publicly traded. And you mentioned some of those um, companies, and, and I run into them all the time, good companies. But, but the, here's some reasons why we feel we're better. Um, we've, with all I just said, with uh, no investors, no debt, um, with that, we focus on servicing the client, not shareholder returns. So we reinvest back into the infrastructure of the company, proprietary claim systems, uh, heavy training for the service team, because, again, as we all know, service is key to the members. And with all that, and I'll tell you even more, over 90 percent uh, annual retention rate since the inception of the company, which obviously that's a direct indicator of overall performance. I mean, minimum 90% for us. A program that we're very proud of that we will talk further about is a program called Pave the Way, which is our proactive provider outreach program, which comes with a 90% acceptance rate from the providers. You mentioned in-house, so we have in-house concierge support teams. All of our teams are in-house. You can walk down the hall and talk with provider relations, our dedicated balance bill support team, our healthcare clinical auditing team, and our legal team. Each group of ours gets an experienced and dedicated account manager. Um, and this is something you and I, uh, Dorothy, talked about uh, a few months ago that I was really impressed uh, that you do, that we do as well, is our communication and education campaigns are are customized for each employer, which makes life easier for the uh, HR department and the members. And you told me that you do this with your clients, which I don't think I've heard many brokers say that they do, um, which takes a lot of time and effort. But then again, that's why you keep your clients. And that's one of the reasons why we keep our clients. It's that education and communication to the members and the HR department and everybody else within the company. A relative to claims-based competitors, uh, we have the lowest rates. We offer fee caps. And there's no upcharges with our services. Our fees are considered part of the claims cost to plan and counted uh, towards uh, stop loss spec and aggregate deductibles. Um, we do offer savings guarantees with fees at risk. Um, all physician claims under $2,000 are repriced and defended for free from us. And really with all this I just mentioned, um, we have an overall 360 degree understanding of the risk associated with RBP programs from the stop loss layer, the employer sponsor level, the members credit risk, which people are afraid of, of course, which results in an overall sustainable health plan with really superior cost containment. And that's what it's all about. Thank you, Mike. Uh, you say that you do everything in-house in your materials, including provider relations, dedicated balance bill support team, clinical auditing, and legal services. First, let's talk about your provider relations. You say that your goal is access. Tell us about that. Uh, sure. Uh, again, provider relations is, is sitting with everybody else, so we're all interacting together. But, but provider relations with us starts with our uh, trademark paved the way program all the way to, to making sure claims are priced properly. 
and all, and pave the way is so important to us and so important to the members of guys. We'll probably mention it a few more times. We, we become a single point of contact for providers, which enables us to build trust and eventually secure access for our members, whether through contracts or open access. Uh, for our provider relations team, the goal isn't bad contracts like the BUCAs. The goal, again, as we've mentioned twice already or three times, the goal is access for our members, single patient agreements, and really intelligent negotiations. Uh, contracts only want to make sense at reasonable rates for our clients. Uh, we try never to give up prepayment honor rights, which we usually don't. Access overall contracts. I mean, again, uh, it's, it's, it's member access. Is there anything else you want to add, Omar, to that? No, I, I think having everything in-house, including provider relations, um, gives our program a little bit more cohesion than is typical in the RBP space. Um, that's, you know, take that with a grain of salt because it's coming from a sales guy at ClaimDoc. But but I hear that over and over and over is that our team just has a pulse on our on any group at any given time because everything is done under one roof and, and no one else can say that. Well, thank you for that. Um, and you mentioned this a couple of times just now that you offer single case agreements and basically all vendors say they do that uh, and they have to in order to stay in business. And you say that you enter into contracts only when it makes sense at reasonable rates for your clients. Who decides when you should be entering into a contract with a provider? That's typically a, a collaborative effort between the plan sponsor, claim doc, and the broker we become co-fiduciary with the plan sponsor. So, you know, per ERISA regulations, we must act in the plan's best interest. And we, we take that very seriously. And so the contracting piece, um, you know, a lot of my competitors were cutting direct contracts to make problems go away. And we've seen them cut deals that are worse than, than the bucas of the world. And that's just not our game. As Mike's alluded to, we're about getting people access through single case agreements, through whatever means necessary. But when you look at our provider relations team, they they truly sit on standby like a TPA would. So a TPA takes a provider phone call. And if the provider starts to get into questions around reimbursement, the TPA, we work lockstep with all of our TPAs. They're, they know when to get calls transferred over to ClaimDoc. They'll do a warm transfer right to our provider relations team. We'll educate the provider on, here's who we are. Here's how we pay. Here's how fast we pay. Is that agreeable? If not, can we? what will you accept in order to get this person seen today? And that happens on office visits, and that happens on surgeries, and that happens on chronic treatments. Um, we're the best in the business at that. Well, let's say that a group has a lot of people using a single facility or a few facilities, and they may be related. Uh, can you contract them for a reasonable rate? And if so, when do you do that? I mean, we've had a lot of promises for contracting for facilities, you know, from our RBP vendors with no real action, no contracts ever came to be. So what makes you different and how successful are you at facility contracting? And would you have a shot at contracting with a large facility uh, group like Providence, St. Joseph Health, for example, here in Orange County, something like that, a, a large uh, facility group? What has your success rate been uh, in situations like that? Well, we could certainly promise you that we can get you a contract with them. But the fact is, if their head of managed care isn't open to hearing any more conversations with new payers, then we're shut off. But again, that doesn't mean we can't get access to that facility. 
97 and a half percent of all of all of our claims flow through just like they would on a PPO plan with no access issues. If access issues do come up, then we'll we'll work on securing single case agreements. And one of the things that I've been educated on from our head of provider relations, because he came from a hospital, he was an executive at a hospital. So he knows how to talk the managed care game. He knows how to work the hospital system. Managed care doesn't always talk to RevCycle management. And so if managed care is saying, no, we're not going to give you a global direct contract for all your clients, that doesn't mean when somebody's at the door needing a surgery in three days and it's getting pre-certed that we can't get a deal done with revenue cycle management on the spot. And so we don't promise contracts that we can't deliver. We say, let's just see how claims flow, trust in our services that we offer, and we'll make sure that your people have great access to care. It's a different conversation than you're hearing from the other vendors. Okay, thank you very much for that clarification. Uh, How many contracts do you guys average um, that you actually enter into in a given year with a facility or facility group? Do you have any idea? I I don't. Uh, Are you talking about like global direct contracts or are you talking more single case agreements? I'm talking uh, more global contracts with, for example, uh, you know, a a St. Joseph Providence or a, you know, whatever the other, some of the big hospitals are, Sharp or, uh, you know what I mean? Some of these big networks of of hospitals and things like that. Um, You know, I'm just trying to get at how much of this you've done. Yeah, we've we've done a decent amount of it. I I don't have any statistics offhand as far as you know, the, the rate at which we contract, but I can tell you like one of my competitors in California touts their, their contract with the Adventist system in California at 200% of Medicare. And I could tell you that we process claims on our standard RBP model from them and we've never had a balanced bill. So do you want to contract at 200% of Medicare or do you want to pay Medicare plus 25? Yeah. That's in, and, and, the, the way we manage claims and the way we take care of members, a lot of times our direct contracts come from fighting with the hospital. And, and the story on that is like, we do such a great job of getting the member comfortable with the fact that they're never going to have to pay any additional than their, than their deductible or out-of-pocket max. And never in our company's history has anybody had to pay more than that. So we understand you can't afford this bill. We're going to make it go away. If we if we continue to get balanced bills on multiple members from the same facility, we go back to the facility and negotiate from a place of leverage because we say, look, our clients and their members are comfortable with this process. We'll negotiate with you, but only if you're going to be fair and reasonable with us, we're not going to cut a bad deal with you just to make a problem go away. And, and Dorothy, I can promise you that all of my competitors are doing that. We know it because we have a standalone bill review product and we're getting asked to audit other RBP vendors claims that they're processing. Yeah, I, I see those all the time. So myself. So yeah, I, I I don't know if you guys know this, but I actually started in the third party administration business before I was a broker. So uh, I'm used to that whole process. Um, so I've seen a few of these bills and I know exactly what you're talking about. And we'll get to that. And I'll ask you more about that particular part in just a moment. But you mentioned, you know, things like balanced billing, which obviously is one of the most important pieces to reference-based pricing. How has the No Surprises Act changed the game for ClaimDoc and other RBP vendors? What are you doing you know, to support employers with the No Surprises Act. Yeah, it's 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 actually helped employers that are in an RBP environment, in my opinion, whether they're claim doc or others, because, and this is just my opinion, but I think some of the facilities are, are gun shy about balanced billing when they're not sure if they're supposed to or not, and they don't want to pay those steep penalties. I can tell you that we're seeing much 
much more in the way of appeals than we are balanced bills, which is great because, again, as co-fiduciary, we would manage the appeal on behalf of the plan. Um, but I think, you know, the No Surprises Act has done some good. We're, um, we're generating QPAs on contracted claims um, for our clients. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, there's been a lot of buzz about transparency. I think it's been, you know, more buzz than, than anything else. But, um, you know, I think transparency is important and I think it'll continue to get better. But we, we just try to stay out on the front on the front edge of everything we can as far as making sure we're compliant making sure our pricing is posted if we have a contract, making sure that QPAs are generated uh, and, and helping our TPAs and our and our clients stay in compliance. Well, thank you for that. And for those listeners that may not be aware, QPA is a qualified payment amount, and that's the amount you have to determine before you go into the federal portal. Uh, each side, the, the uh, provider side and the uh, employer plan sponsor side uh, by way of their vendors, because generally the administrators don't have that information, will submit both sides. When they can't agree in the first 30 days, they need to go into the federal portal, uh, the independent dispute resolution process. And uh, the QPA, the qualified payment amount, is basically where you start. Uh, you're, you're putting together your, your offer on each side because it's baseball-style arbitration within the portal. Uh, the arbiter can't you know, simply cut it down the middle. They have to pick one side or the other. So it sounds like you guys are doing a lot of work within the uh, federal portal. Um, <laughs> it's funny because a lot of times I talk to salespeople about RBP things and I talk about things like the No Surprises Act and they don't even mention things like the QPA, which makes me a little nervous because if you don't understand the qualified payment amount and what that is all about, um, I have a little bit of concern about your knowledge of the reference-based pricing world and how the world is acting right now with, with, uh, with the No Surprises Act. So thank you very much for for that and for understanding what I was asking you. Thank you. <laughs> well, luckily, I just got a brief from my legal team, so I sound smarter than I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for the legal team. Good job. <laughs> so the biggest issue that we've had with RBP is that all the negotiations happen after the services are performed, which, Mike, you and I have talked about this before. Uh, and frankly, the employer health plan has little power at that point. We at my company firmly believe that RBP would be much more successful and much less stressful if the RBP vendor would you know, get the agreements with the providers, particularly the facilities up front as soon as we know that the patient is going to be inpatient uh, when they have their surgery pre-approval and so forth. Why don't RBP vendors try to do the negotiations like this up front, you know, when they'd be the most successful? Because after the service is done, basically, you're at the mercy of the provider. You know, in a schedule procedures, we know it's going to happen. They have that UR approval. It seems to me, and everyone at my company, particularly my business partner, Anthony, he, I mean, he just goes off and, you know, on a tangent on this all the time. Why can't we just do this uh, at the beginning? And it would make my life so much easier and my client's life so much easier. Uh, that's, we think, when the negotiations should start. So what are your thoughts on this? And have you ever done that? And can you do that? I know that's a loaded question. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, there's a lot there. Yes, we do do that. If there are, if, if the provider is, is asking reimbursement questions prior to care rendered, we, we will, uh, we will enter into negotiations with them. We, we, can and do do that, but we don't want to break into jail, so to speak. We don't want to be the ones who initiate that pre-care negotiation because what's the hospital's incentive to give us a deal better than they're giving Blue Cross and Blue Shield? They, they don't have one. So, so I, 
I disagree with your statement that the plan has little power after the fact. I think the plan has more power after the fact because now care has been rendered and now the hospital has to come back to us and tell us why they deserve a higher level of reimbursement. Well, that's where you and I disagree and probably will always disagree because being on the front lines, the people that see these things for our clients all the time, uh, we've had some really sticky situations with providers that could have been resolved up front uh, at the time of the uh, at the time of the pre-certification. Uh, you know, simply the fact that we tell them they're calling in uh, and they call in for pre-certification and they're told, for example, what. Uh, how the claim is going to be paid. This this is an RBP plan. We pay at this whatever amount, uh, and they know that. Um, why can't we get that to them in writing to have them sign off that they're accepting that before they go inpatient? And I think that's the, the argument that we have to what you just said, because we think there's more power there. Because after the fact, the service has already been rendered, and they, and they, they send a bill. Um, and it's, you know, fighting. We've got, we've got RBP claims going on that have been going on for two and a half years on one of our clients. And, um, you know, we just can't get it resolved because neither side is really moving. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's it's been pretty ugly at times. And, and uh, that's just something where, and it's okay to disagree, but we, we think it should be done more so up front when you already know that they're going in for the service uh, rather than after the fact. Because like I said, we've seen the, the employer plan sponsor lose all their power once the claim has been generated because the service has already been performed. Uh, so why can't we, you know, our thought on this is why can't we get uh, them to just sign off on, on what they were told verbally, uh, how the plan pays at the beginning. So that's, that's where, that's where our thought process is. And again, you have different thoughts and, and that's fine too, but I'm just telling you just to kind of defend where, where we're coming from on this. And, and, um, we don't, we don't feel that the, the employer plan has, has much power at that point. Uh, a few months ago, you and I, and, uh, Anthony, I remember how passionate he was about it. Yeah, that's that's his big that's his baby. It's like, why can't we do this, <laughs> Omar? You well, my take on that is, uh, yeah, my take on that is that you just you you dilute you dilute plan assets if you negotiate pre care. I mean, ninety seven and a half percent of the claims we process flow through with no problems at all. And when there is an issue, whether it's an appeal or a balanced bill, we we help manage that on behalf of the plan. Um, it, it sounds like. Dorothy and her partner just maybe need to write one with us and see it. <laughs> well, that's a possibility too. Again, I, I like to, I, as, as Mike knows, uh, as you guys, as you guys heard right from the beginning of the podcast, I educated my clients for two and a half years before I even let any of them, they, they were begging me, can we try this RPP <laughs> thing? And I'm like, not until we're comfortable with it because it's not really out here yet. The West isn't ready for this yet. And once we felt it was, then we started introducing it to our clients and we started rolling it out. Um, the same thing with vendors. I don't just jump in to a new vendor, make a recommendation to to my clients about a new vendor uh, or new to us at least until I've done my due diligence because again um, it's my reputation on the line you know it's uh, my clients uh, truly believe that we know what we're talking about and uh, they they take our advice so when we make a recommendation I've had very few clients ever say no to a recommendation as a matter of fact I can't remember any of them that ever have so I need to be 110% confident um, with you know, with that process, um, and make sure that the vendor that we're we're looking at is going to do uh, a better job. Because otherwise, what's the point of rocking the boat and and moving vendors? Or if an, if, if it's a new case, it's different. Uh, but if it's an existing case, it's already with a vendor. It's a little bit more difficult to 
to change vendors. You, you know, you follow what I'm saying? Because sure, sure. Why rock the boat unless it's uh, unless it's needed for some reason? So, but yeah, yeah, this is something like I said, we'll agree to disagree on that point and that's fine. It's like I said, this is coming from my, my business partner, Anthony, primarily, uh, as Mike knows, and because uh, he has to sit on the front lines and, as I said, handhold uh, the employers and the human resources department through this entire process and, uh, you know, and the HR departments uh, that he works with and, and himself, they just, that, that's just something that they feel really strongly about. But thank you for your, for your ideas on that. Thank you for your comments on that. I appreciate it. So let's talk about balanced billing support and clinical auditing. You guys mentioned that earlier. What makes ClaimDoc different here? Tell us about those services. Sure, I'll, I'll jump in on this one. Um, th- this seems to be probably the most asked or most concerning uh, question or issue I get out there uh, with brokers when we talk about reference-based pricing and, you know, let's let's look at it, why not? And they bring this up. And so we know that it's right at the top of the list. So with ClaimDoc, we work to make the balance bill go away right from the start, second one. Um, the other vendors, it seems like wait, and I've heard, seems like wait till the member gets a second notice or a third, right? And you can't wait that long. By the, by the time the member gets even the first one, they're panicked or freaking out. Um, and, and by the way, um, I was on a predominant or a very dominant PPO plan uh, uh, last couple of years, and I got a balance bill. So it does happen, not just in reference-based pricing, but on your regular PPO plan. So I've had them. Uh, my wife's had them. And I know we have, it's, it, then what happens is how do you handle it? And that's where we come in. Um, so once we get, we'll, we'll, we direct the members to submit that balance bill to us immediately. We're not wasting time. We need to jump on that and get it taken care of. So we will assign a single point of contact for that member to explain the process, send it over. We'll look at explain the process, answer any questions, set up the next steps, etc. So we're on it from minute one. Um, our balance bill team uh, then starts the resolution process with the provider and sends a uh, cease and desist letter to them not to contact the member. We want to work with the provider. There's no need now to go back to the member, Susie Smith, Joe Jones, we are now handling. So you're going to directly deal with us, claim doc. Um, the balance bill team will continue to be the first uh, line of communication, of course, with the provider and the only line of communication through the entirety of the billing process and beyond uh, should there need uh, a direct legal intervention be required. It does happen, um, but we are handling it. That's why uh, we have that directly, that in-house legal team for one. Yeah, let's yes. let's roll into the legal team for just a moment because you brought it up and you, you know I was going to ask about that anyway. Uh, you have legal in-house. You aren't the only RBP vendor to have legal in-house, but what makes your legal department better? Um, sure. So um, it's standard practice uh, for us to have our in our legal team in-house. Uh, it's standard practice. Okay. The key uh, is how we use them, though. Um, not just for your traditional corporate responsibilities that some of our competitors do, but to support the whole program, the whole team, the whole company. Active advising to claim bo- claim doc teams daily, and of course uh, to protect our clients and their members from predatory uh, billing practices. Uh, they're just down the hall, but 
it's different for us because our legal team is working with all departments on uh, on a daily basis on all issues. So the member experience here is often outsourced for legal purposes for other companies early in the process. Uh, with some of our competitors, results in you know poor member experience because oh I got to go out to our outsourced legal team, another uh, uh, law firm. Ours is just down the hall, as I mentioned. Our legal department works with other teams for, as I mentioned, on for daily support. Um, I'm not sure that uh, other reference-based pricing firms have a staff attorneys that are focused on the client support that we do. I'm not sure that they do because our, our legal team is part of the whole team. Um, and so we are one of the our two RBP firms that I'm aware of with co-fiduciary status and the other out, others outsource their legal work that I'm aware of. So again, all in-house, uh, we, we're, we're, we're a true partner to every client we bring on the books. And just a fun-filled fact for you, Dorothy, um, Claim Doc has never lost a case, a court case. So just want to throw that out there. <laughs> That's good to hear. Well, let's talk about that uh, a little bit more on the legal side. Let's talk about your role as a fiduciary. You guys do this. So does AMPS, for example. Let's talk about why this is important and what success that you've had at being a planned fiduciary. Do your clients feel more secure with your having skin in the game, so to speak? And, you know, just let's walk us through that fiduciary role. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. You guys probably know, I don't know if you know this about me or not, but I actually started off as an auditor when I first started in this business. And uh, I had to learn ERISA very quickly. And I had to learn the responsibilities of being a fiduciary very, very quickly. So uh, this hits home with me. So let's let's talk about it. Um, how are you guys different from a fiduciary perspective? We we actually write ourselves into the plan documents um, as a as a co-fiduciary with the plan sponsor. And and going back to the legal piece, I'm sure our competitors do have legal resources in-house, but when we say legal is in-house, we mean like the actual supportive balance bills, the actual credit impairment reversals, litigation, we we manage that with in-house counsel. And that's much different than outsourcing legal work to a third-party firm who may hand it down to a paralegal who may or may not know what they're doing. Um, we have a team of attorneys on staff that, that manage that process. And, and frankly, most of our provider relations team, is uh, they have law degrees as well. So we, we, we do take the co-fiduciary piece very, very seriously. We do have very smart people um, working on our cases, whether it's contracting with provider relations or litigation defense that we're taking on. But we're, we're taking on, as co-fiduciary, we're taking on full litigation liability. If we have to go to court and we have to hire a local first chair that knows the judge in a certain county, we're, we're paying those full legal fees. My competitors, if they're offering co-fiduciary, I know ELAP offers full co-fiduciary status. They'll go to court. I used to work there, so I know that model pretty well. Um, but these other guys that are touting legal services, they're saying that, but then when there's disputed claims, they're recommending the plan settle the claims with, with plan dollars. It's not, it's not the same thing. And, and it just goes back to our process. So I want to kind of go back to the balance bill and clinical auditing piece. When we get a facility claim, we don't just reprice what comes in. We clinically audit that bill line by line and deny pieces of the bill that shouldn't be there. 10 things that we need to know more about. We may need itemization. We may need records. We reprice what's left. And then what we do that's very unique, and this sort of starts our balanced bill defense, is we send certified mail, that entire audit packet, to the hospital billing department. 
along with appeal instructions. So now the hospital knows exactly who Claim Doc is. They know exactly how and why we came up with the reimbursement that we did, and they and they know that they can appeal it if they if they feel the uh, the payment insufficient. And that builds a lot of credibility with the facilities. So now, you know, going back to balance bills, if that same facility balance bills our member, our first um, act to to defend the the member is we send legal notice to the same address at the same hospital billing department, basically saying, hey, look, um, we sent you our audit report. We sent you appeal instructions. You cash the check from the TPA. This balance bill is improper and it needs to go away. And so if you just think about it practically, if you're a hospital and you send out 2,000 balance bills on patients for the last six months and four of those come back from claim doc legal, um, which ones are you going to write off first? And, and so that whole circle of the claim flow is very unique to the space. Well, thank you very much for that explanation. Um, as you know, I asked this question. Uh, I don't know if you've listened to any of our other podcasts. I've interviewed a, a few different RBP vendors, and I hit them pretty hard on this, and, and I do appreciate your, your uh, explanation on that. Uh, let's talk about member advocacy. This is basically where the rubber hits the road. Tell us about your member advocacy service and, again, what makes you different. Uh, sure, Jeff, I'll, I'll jump in on this. Um, just, uh, just a fact, uh, nearly half of Claim Doc's full-time employees are member advocates. So that's how important we take service uh, and, and our member advocacy team. Uh, we answer just some facts for you, but this is how we work. We answer the phone in six seconds. I mean, we're, we're watching this. This is stuff that's important. Uh, we're answering the phone in six seconds on average. Our member advocates are trained to give away their direct phone line and email as a single point of contact. So that member can go back to the same person each and every time. Now, I remember being part of uh, a PPO plan. And, you know, as you call in, whoever you're with, one of the bucas, you get somebody different each time. Yeah, well, and then not- you have to explain You have to explain the situation to each one of them each time. And it's, exactly. it, it, it drives you crazy as a consumer. It, yeah. It's an absolute nightmare, right? So you start from scratch, not with us. You were talking to the same person each and every time. So you're building a relationship with them. They know you. You know them. So that's huge for us. Um, clients will have a dedicated account manager, no matter what size. Um, and again, we talked about this a few times, and I know how important, how great you do a job of this. Again, as our communication and education campaigns uh, make life easier for everybody from clients to the members. And, and again, we belong, we believe that that, as you know, and agree, uh, the Kim and everybody that talks about reference based pricing, uh, agrees that communication, uh, with the members and an open dialogue with the HR staff is so critical to the success of an RBP plan. I mean, that's key. Um, it's our ne- team is necessary. It's not just key. I mean, it is absolutely it's necessary. necessary. And, and I think, yeah, and, and you and I have talked about this and which groups are, are, are better and, and those groups that have English speaking and non English speaking um, employees, which makes it even more crucial. So we, we all believe and agree that communication uh, with members and the dialogue with HR is success is really successful um, to sustaining these types of plans. Um, and again, uh, our team creates, you know, specific like you do uh, communication pieces, you know, customized for the employees. Uh, for open enrollment and beyond through the entirety of the whole plan uh, year and beyond. Uh, members expect 
um, high touch from us because we start from the scratch. Minute one, we're talking to them, we're helping them, so they expect that uh, from us. So pre and post service needs. Um, our advocates work closely with the members on pre-service stuff, uh, needs from contacting doctors, make sure they have the uh, right information about the plan, they understand it, how to submit the claim. So we jump in there right right away on that, help the members, let me talk to your provider and make sure they understand it. Um, and then following medical services, we'll help the members with reviewing the claim, uh, the bill, the EOB, whatever it is, to make sure that they understand it or get them to the appropriate party. Uh, members, we also have a, a mobile app, our website, call Smith Forms, um, and again, contacting the same member advocate. But really, with everything I just mentioned, um, you know, members need to feel good and secure um, with us. And that's why they're going to stay with us, tell other people. Um, that's as we just all agree on, um, you know, same person each time. You're not going to get that in many places. So those are keys to our member advocacy team. Well, thank you for that. And uh, by the way, you mentioned uh, that we do our own communications as well as those with our RBP vendors. We didn't anticipate having to do as much of this as we had to do in the beginning because, quite frankly, we were kind of promised that the uh, that the vendors would do a lot of this for us. But what we discovered very early on was that their communication pieces just weren't cutting it. And so I had – you guys probably know this about me. I'm a bit of a writer. I'm actually yeah. quite a writer. Uh, so I started writing my own communication pieces, my own educational pieces uh, along with what the vendors were giving us because they weren't they weren't custom to what the needs were for our clients and so forth and and uh, they just weren't good enough so we started doing our own um, you know I, I didn't want to do this it wasn't originally <laughs> part of what I agreed to do but I was going to do whatever it took to help make our uh, reference-based pricing clients successful so we did what we had to do so it's, it's nice to hear that you will do some customization on that sure. because no two groups in my opinion are alike and it sounds like you take that uh, perspective as well. So thank you for bringing that up. Now, I Absolutely. Looked, yeah, I, I looked at your information, your written information that you guys sent me and everything, and I've been seeing it from, from Mike for a few months anyway. Um, and it, you talk about how the client never pays more than 300% of Medicare. How do you guarantee that? What if a hospital won't come off their bill rates and the lowest that they come down to is, let's say, 700% of Medicare? How does that work? Who pays the difference? I mean, this is a pretty heavy statement when it comes to stop-loss reimbursements and so forth because, let's face it, some hospitals just won't come down. And we talked about this at the beginning uh, here in California. Um, 300% is 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 really good for some areas, uh, but we've seen them as high as six hundred, seven hundred, nine hundred percent of Medicare. And those build rates that they come off with, and they and they say this is you know what we're going to balance bill your employees at is the difference on this. That's pretty significant. So tell us about you know that three hundred percent of Medicare uh, that you talk about in your written materials. Yeah, so that three hundred percent of Medicare gets written into the plan docs as well. So stop loss knows that's their maximum risk on any given claim. We can and do get exceptions from time to time if, if a settlement is just over that and, and the plan sponsor is okay with paying the difference. But when you're talking six, seven hundred percent of Medicare as a settlement offer, we're just we're just flat out not going to settle at that rate. We're going to fight. Thank that you, claim. thank you. And, <laughs> My yeah. clients would say yeah. thank you because yeah, that's what we think too. It, it surprises me that so many RBP vendors out there are like, oh, well, they're going to come off. You know, they're going to come off by a hundred thousand dollars, but they're still charging seven hundred and fifty percent of Medicare. 
You know, it's like, come on. I, I was just saying, Dorothy, I hope our competitors keep doing that because we've had brokers come to us and say, hey, these guys or those guys are, are asking us to settle claims at 85, 95, 100% of bill charges. And we're diluting plan assets to the fact that we're, we're, we're paying more than Abuka anyway. So what are we doing here? We're just creating extra work for ourselves and we're not seeing the savings that we should in an RVP environment. Um, you know, there are rare exceptions like MD Anderson, as an example, in Houston, Texas, it's known as a center of excellence for oncology and people want to go there from all over the country. Well, we've cut 450 some odd single case agreements at MD Anderson. And some of those fall slightly over 300% of Medicare. And, and in those scenarios, what we do is we go back to our stop loss carrier and say, hey, hey, can you guys make an exception on this one to pay above 300? And we go back to the plan sponsor and say, hey, you have a member that wants to go to MD Anderson for treatment. It's fallen just outside of plan parameters. Is that okay? And and we get it done. But those are those are rare exceptions when dealing with you know, typically very rare chronic conditions. And it's good that you know that you have to go to the stop loss carrier to get that approval because, again, some of the RBP vendors we've worked with in the past didn't even seem to think that that was an issue. Well, the stop loss carriers that we work with have really good loss ratios, so they sort of owe it to us. Historically, um, RBP hasn't gotten the credit it deserves from a, from a risk perspective. At least our version of RBP hasn't. And it's, that's starting to change, so we're starting to get numbers that we think are more in line with the way we manage claims, which is a good thing for us, for our clients, for everybody. But yeah, we want, you know, we want our stop loss carriers making money, but they they haven't historically priced RBP necessarily the way they should have they should have been. Mike, did you have some comments on this as well? Oh yeah. I was just gonna say just it was just another thing that we do that I think that our competitors don't do as well as we do. Um as as Omar just mentioned. I just Add that to the list, Dorothy. Okay. All right. Well, tell me what you mean by savings guarantees with fees at risk and maximum liability price match guarantee. So tell me about those statements in your written materials. Yeah, we will offer, we'll put our fees at risk. Essentially, we'll put our money where our mouth is, either in the form of um, an, an overall max liability cap where if, you know, a a, cl- a plan goes over a certain claim number, we'll, we'll reimburse our fees. Um, a savings guarantee as far as a percentage off of um, off the bill claims, we can look at a, cl- uh, look at a client and, and look at their history and say, okay, we, we think we can save you X. And if we don't hit that, we'll, we'll pay you back. Uh, and then as far as just a max liability price match guarantee, we're, we're basically just saying our version of RBP is the best in the business at cost containment and our stop loss will back that up. So that's, that's what that is. And and we do those on a case by case basis. There's no hard and fast rules with the savings that we offer. We even do some ag buy downs for, you know, fully insured groups that are dipping into self-funded and going all the way from fully insured to self-funded RBP in the first year. We'll, we'll cap their risk. Oh, that's good to know. Uh, well, let's talk about your pave the way program. You guys mentioned that earlier on. What is that all about? Sure. And uh, again, we keep mentioning it because it's so important um, to claim doc. And one of the reasons why we're so successful in taking care of our clients is uh, it's it's our trademark proactive provider outreach program. Uh, it starts at implementation, actually a little before that, and continues after the effective date. So uh, we create a database uh, of providers targeted uh, to smooth the access experience through utilization reports. Uh, the key to the program, really, Dorothy, is 
promoting and encouraging the use of provider nomination forms uh, to the members to help uh, with the member process and, and getting the process going and tell us who you, what doctors you want to see so we can get on the ball and, and start uh, getting them uh, in, the, in the process, in the system. Um, most of the providers agree to the program uh, and see the members right away. But honestly, you know, as we all know a few providers uh, want a single case agreement. And then there's some, a small percentage want global contracts that we deal with. So, you know, again, I mentioned before 90% access, but we contact, just to know that you know how the process works, we're contacting those providers at least from our, our records and our, our data at least five times um, because they're so busy and, you know, the doctors and the staff. So that, that's really the hardest part. Most doctors take Medicare, as we know. And we have reimbursed them above that, around 125%. But the real hard part is uh, the tracking them down and the staff or the doctor and then educating them uh, on the program. So that's really the toughest part. It, you know, it's easier to get them. It's just getting a hold of them, getting them on the phone or talking to them. Because uh, we, we want to partner that with them. That's our goal. Um, so, again, as I mentioned, we get a 90% plus acceptance rate when proactively reaching out to the doctors, which is great. Um, and it continues to rise. So, and again, as part of the program, a member advocate will reach out to the provider to make sure that they have all the necessary information regarding our plan, how it works, where to send stuff, the phone numbers, everything they need. And any questions, come back to our member advocate. But we're working with that provider. Uh, we want to, again, make it easy for the member and the provider. Uh, we even assist members on scheduling doctor's appointments. Um, and again, what's key again is our, our people. They're passionate, our proprietary technology. Our people make the difference. And that's why uh, 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 Pave the Way has been successful. We assist also in finding the right providers for the members if they don't have a doctor or need to change. So we're there. And again, and we also provide Pave the Way performance reports to the clients. So Pave the way is, is crucial. I even think, Omar, we had a competitor uh, is trying to put together the same type of program as us, and they're naming it something kind of similar. And we found out, like, okay, you're, you're copying us, which is a great form of flattery. So we must be doing something right. Yeah, as long as, well, the not, fact as, long as they're not violating your trademarks, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the fact is that our competitors don't have – the internal resources to execute something like pave the way our CEO says it's a high calorie burn and you have to have a lot of people doing it. And that kind of goes back to the private equity nature of our competitors is oftentimes they run skeleton crews in their member services departments. And, and we don't, we have a truly beefed up member advocacy that can execute on something like pave the way. And, and really all pave the way is, is a series of proactive outreaches to the providers that the group already sees and we do that during open enrollment. So we're, we're doing a lot of work prior to the effective date to ensure a transition from a traditional program runs smooth. Because when you're going from United or Anthem to no network at all, that can be scary, not just for a, a business, but for their people too. And so, you know, we have people send us six, eight, 10 physicians that they see, they nominate them. And we literally call all those docs and say, Hey, Dr. Johnson, um, Sally Jane is coming from Blue Cross and Blue Shield over to Claim Doc. Here's 
here's how we're going to pay you. Here's how quickly we're going to pay you. They've got an appointment on January 6th and the coverage transitions on the 1st. Will you accept them and charge them their applicable copay and file the claim accordingly? Here's here's the member ID card. Here's what it looks like. Here's the payer ID. We just do that education so that the transition is is a little bit smoother. And like Mike said, the acceptance rate with the providers is over 90% across the country. And that's not a pie in the sky number that some sales guy has given you. We can back that up with our reports. Like it's better than a physician only network. It just is. And frankly, when I came to work for ClaimDoc, I didn't believe it either. I'm like, what do you mean you, you fully replace the network? No PHCS, no prime, no nothing. And I'm telling you, it works. Well, thank you for that. Um, I talked about in the beginning how I actually had one client leave, and that's the only um, – they're still with us. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. They're still with us. Uh, but leave RBP uh, because it just wasn't a good type of group uh, for reference-based pricing. And uh, so after a few years, they, they went back to a PPO plan. What percentage of your clients have stopped using RBP you know, just said, no, it's too complicated. It isn't working. Uh, do you have any clients that have, uh, have left RBP once they started or is it a hundred percent? It's all, it's all work fine and dandy from, from the beginning. Well, of course there's some attrition, whether it's acquisition or whether it's just an unpleasant experience, we're not perfect, but I think our retention rate speaks for itself. 2020, um, we were like 91%. 21, we were 89%. And this year we were over 90% again, and, and, or 2022 rather. Um, and, and the, the attrition we had last year was from our CEO letting go of a block of bad business, literally firing our clients because they weren't good clients or they had a, some sort of GA in place that was taking massive overrides and diluting our savings. And, it, you know, there's just, there is good money to be made in this space and therefore there are bad actors. And so, um, he, he likes to say we prune the hedges, so to speak. So, you know, I think our retention rates are going to stay where they're at because we, we truly do a good job of taking care of our customers. Okay. Thank you. Well, thanks very much for your time today. Um, and great information and, uh, you know, and, and for allowing me to disagree with you on certain things <laughs> that always makes it a little bit more lively, I guess. <laughs> if anyone should want to reach out to you at claim doc, how would they do that? They can get us at sales at claim-doc.com. They can also find us on our website, www.claim-doc.com, or they can look us up on and follow us on LinkedIn. Thank you again, Dorothy, for inviting us to your podcast. Um, as I mentioned to you before, a few times you are considered the, a guru of self-funding and reference-based pricing. So I can't tell you how much I appreciate uh, this opportunity to talk with you today. Thank you, Mike. Dorothy, it was a pleasure talking to you. Always enjoy a, a good conversation with true indus- industry experts, and I look forward to talking again soon. Thank you very much, guys. Take care. And for everybody out there that's listening, thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to listen to our podcast. And I want to say from the bottom of my heart, thanks to all of you, because we've been growing very, very rapidly, and it's all because of you, our listeners. So thank you so much. Please stay safe, stay healthy, and we look forward to the next episode of the Benefits Executive Roundtable. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. 
Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835 or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.